of God's Word. Find the book of Colossians. book of Colossians. We've been spending the last several weeks looking at this book together. Colossians chapter 1. Feel free, whether you've got a Bible or you've got a device, you'll, we'll also have some verses on the screen, and there's some verses in your bulletin as you walked in. Whatever means, find Colossians. And we'll begin reading chapter 1, verse 13 through to verse 20, looking at the question, who is... Jesus. The Word of God says, He has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of God. One of my favorite discoveries, and now that we've been traveling back and forth here to Cadiz off and on, and as we're looking forward to moving here in the weeks weeks ahead, one of my favorite discoveries is that Taco Bell KFC combo by the highway. And I'm serious about that. We, we visited last Sunday as we left. We were grabbing some lunch on our way out. And, and I was reminded that the details matter. Because after we ordered from the Taco Bell menu, I thought about mixing and matching the menu, but thought a two-hour ride home, my poor wife would not have appreciated me doing that. But order off Taco Bell menu, we were waiting in our car for the food to be brought out, and the lady in the car behind us got out of her car, walked up to the window and said, hey, we think we got your food, and comes into our vehicle with some KFC boxes. (laughs) So she had boxes from the Kentucky Fried Chicken, and judging by her reaction, I don't think she was expecting it. (laughs) And we said, sorry, ma'am, we ordered from the Taco Bell menu, and she went inside to to fix her order. Now, I don't know what happened when the lady went inside, but I want us to use our imagination and imagine she went to the front counter, She talked to the person and said, hey, I ordered, you gave me fried chicken, but I ordered a quesadilla. And I want us to imagine that the person at the front front counter looks at her and says, ma'am, it doesn't matter what you ordered. It's really all the same anyway. It's really, it's really the fried chicken or the tacos, they're really all the same things. We would be dumbfounded, wouldn't we, if that had happened to us, and yet... Many in our culture think about faith in just that way. We think about how, well, you can have your tacos or you can have your chicken, but in reality, they're all the same. They'll say, I can have my Christianity, you can have my Buddhism, you can have Buddhism, but underneath it all, aren't we all really, isn't it all really the same thing? And what this reveals, I think, is twofold. I think it reveals, first, our culture's general ignorance of what various faiths actually believe. Because when we begin to dive into the details, the Jesus of the Bible and the teaching of Buddhism are not only not compatible, but they're often in many places in direct opposition to one another. 
But more than that, I think it reveals the low value our culture places on faith convictions. Think about it. We would seek to correct someone if we ordered tacos and got fried chicken, but we wouldn't often correct people about them teaching falsehood about God or the world we live in. We would just say, well, they can have it their way and I can have it mine, and yet nothing could be more important. And I think one of the things that we see in our culture, particularly with this, is how we talk about Jesus. Rarely is a figure presented in so many different ways. You hear some people say, well, he was sort of this free-spirited hippie with a message of love and inclusion. You have others who treat him as if he's just this big, bad warrior who's coming to just destroy all of his enemies. Some see him as some sort of misunderstood political revolutionary, while others sort of just a regular carpenter that was misunderstood. Some say he's just a prophet, and others say he's God himself. And what from people tell me, if Jesus were alive in the flesh today, he would be a supporter of both sides of the political aisle. <laughs> and yet, what incredible reverence people show toward a man named Jesus, yet it's impossible for all these things to be true of him. Our culture seems to have both a reverence and an ignorance when it comes to this person named Jesus. And the Colossians were dealing with much the same thing. The Colossians had all sorts of confusions. There were people who had come into their church and were teaching and believing that Jesus, yeah, Jesus is great. Great teacher, great example, but there's no way he could have been God, right? That's what these people in this body were teaching. I mean, they would say, how could God take on a lowly human body? How could God die on a cross? It was possible this teaching was rooted in a sort of dualism that saw the body as evil, but spiritual unseen things as good. And it was into this situation that Paul writes to answer the question, who is Jesus. But I want us, as we walk through this this morning, to know there's a second question undergirding this that's, that's just as important as who Jesus is. The second question is, what will you do with him? Will we follow him or flee from him? Will we remain indifferent to him, which the Bible would tell us is actually fleeing from him? We see there's really only two options. Because in the words of Jesus himself, he said, you are either for me or against me. There's no indifference when it comes to the person of Jesus. And Paul begins by teaching that Jesus is the Lord of creation. He's the Lord of creation. And he uses sort of three names, three titles we're going to see to show that Jesus is the Lord. He's the boss. He's in charge of everything. Jesus is the Lord of creation. And the first title we see is he says that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. We saw this at the end of our sermon last week when we saw in verse 13 of chapter 1 of Colossians, we see, He, being God the Father, has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So we learn not only does God have a Son, but He's beloved and He's given Him a kingdom and He's placed us by grace through faith into this Kingdom, and probably the most popular title you'll hear for Jesus is the Son of God. 
It was Peter's confession when Jesus asked, who do you say I am? It was the centurion's discovery as Jesus was dying there on the cross. The guard confessed, surely this man was the Son of God. And it's at the very heart of the Christian faith, but what does it mean? So many times as Christians, we'll use these terms, but we don't really ever define them. What does it mean that Jesus is God's Son? Well, There's some religious groups that teach that this means that God the Father gave birth to Jesus in natural means, meaning the same way you or I were were born. There's some groups that teach that. There's other groups that teach that Son of God means that Jesus is the highest created being possible. And yet, the Bible would correct us, and it gets us right into the heart of the incredible mystery of the Trinity, but the term son isn't a term of origin, but rather a term of relationship. It isn't talking about how Jesus got here, it's talking about who he is. To be the son of God is to be of the same nature, the same essence of God. It was to claim to be God himself. I'm so glad Laura read from Philippians chapter 2 where we saw clearly where it said he who being in very nature God, who who as Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 in our text this morning says that it was in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If you flip over a page to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9 You'll see it again as if Paul didn't need, Paul says it two times here, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is God. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 goes on to show that by saying he is son, he was saying that he is the heir of all things through whom he created the world, that he being Jesus, this is Hebrews 1.3, you can write this down and look at this later if you need to, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. To be the son was to be the ruler, the creator, and sustainer of creation. To be the one, to be one in essence and substance with the father. As Jesus said, to see him was to see the father. You ever seen somebody who is just the spitting image of their parents? Jesus wants to say as son that he communicates. He's the exact image, the chip off the old block, the spitting image of what God is like. In the Gospels, consider also the term son of God was blasphemous. When he would say this, the Pharisees would pick up stones to stone him, which was the punishment for blasphemy. To say this, they knew, was for him to say that he is the Lord, the ruler of all things. Because sonship and kingship were always connected in the Bible. Always connected. You can look at Psalm chapter 2 or Second Samuel chapter 7, where the Bible tells us a son was going to come and he was going to rule over all things. That Adam was created and placed in the garden to be both a son and to act as a king over creation. Jesus is the son of God, sharing the very essence of God and thus ruling over all things. Second, Jesus is Lord of creation because he is the last Adam. He's the last Adam. Consider the Bible in a number of places contrasts Adam, who was there in the garden in the beginning, with Jesus. Just one example here, Romans chapter 5, verse 17. 
Romans chapter 5, verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, there's Adam's sin in the garden, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. There we see the contrast. Adam's sin, Christ's obedience. Paul even goes as far in Romans 5 to call Adam a type or a picture, an illustration of Jesus. When we're to think of Jesus, he says, think of what Adam was supposed to do. Think of someone who actually gets the job done that Adam failed to do. And this is part of what Paul means when he says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That when God created Adam in the book of Genesis, he was just like we are created in the image of God, created to represent a God that couldn't be seen by the world, and that Adam was meant to be a leader in imaging and telling the world what God was like, and yet he failed to perfectly do that, didn't he? He fell into sin, he listened to the serpent, and so all of us, And every figure who came after Adam, though created in the image of God, have failed to perfectly live out what God intended for us to do, except for one. Jesus lived the perfect life. He's the last Adam, the Bible says. He perfectly images God to the world. If you want to know what God's like, look to Jesus, the perfect embodiment of all God is he is the scripture also says the firstborn of all creation. Now you're probably gonna stop and go, how's that work? What does what does that even mean? Didn't we just say he's God, therefore he's not created? Well, that's that's exactly right because I think we often have confusion around that term firstborn. We think of that and we think that means he was the first person or, or the first to be born. But the term firstborn in the Bible isn't actually often used to talk about birth order, but rather it's a term of authority, position, and privilege. Let me give you a couple examples. Consider the story of Jacob and Esau. Now, maybe you're not super familiar with that account, but in that account, Jacob, the younger brother, tricked Esau, the older brother, into selling his birthright, his authority, his right to the inheritance, and his authority that his father had given him. And he tricks him to sell it to him for what basically amounted to a bowl of SpaghettiOs. (laughs) He gets him really hungry. He says, here, I got these hot and ready soup here for you. Exchange your birthright for this food. And Jacob, from then on, after having the birthright, was considered the firstborn, though he was the younger brother. It didn't have anything necessarily to do with birth order. It was about right to the inheritance. Consider, you can write down this example and look this up when you get home, but consider Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, and there the nation of Israel is called God's firstborn. That's interesting because We all know that Israel was not the first nation that ever existed, right? You know, they were called out of Egypt. But what firstborn meant was that they had a unique calling, prominence, purpose, and inheritance to receive from God. Jesus being the firstborn is a statement of his prominence and his preeminence. It's a statement of how great he is. There's actually a prophecy in the book of Psalms, Psalm 
89 verse 27 that says that the, the Messiah, the Savior coming through David, look what it says. I will make him the firstborn, the highest king of the earth. It's basically saying this guy's going to be great. He's going to be the boss. He's going to be in charge. He's going to have access to everything that God has to his inheritance. Jesus is called the firstborn throughout the Bible to display his position of authority over all things, that he's the one who receives the kingdom from the Father. He has authority over everything. He's the firstborn of creation, and he represents to God, he represents God to the world just as Adam was meant to. Remember in Hebrews chapter 1, we hear that Jesus was the heir of all things. The King of kings, the Lord of lords. It's the same thing as saying he's the firstborn of creation. Jesus being the last Adam means he succeeds where Adam fails. Adam failed to perfectly represent God to the world, to subdue the world and make it and and, and reflect God's glory in it. Adam brought condemnation through his sinful life while Jesus brought salvation through his perfect life. Just as Adam ruled a perfect creation but brought it to ruin, so in contract, Jesus is ruling an imperfect creation and he's bringing it toward perfection. And one day he's going to have it all subdued and it's all going to be his and under his feet. As the last Adam, Jesus is Lord of creation. And finally, Jesus is Lord of creation because he is the source of creation. He is the source of of creation. Look with me at verse 16 and 17 of Colossians 1. Look with me here. For by him, him being Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything. He was there, it says, When everything was made, Jesus couldn't have been created because it says he created all things. He's either a part of the all things or he's not, and the text says he's not. He created everything. He didn't come into existence. He has been and always will be eternal forever. And notice how much effort Paul goes to to get the point across that he made everything. He says... Notice this. He says, by him, all things were created. He says, in heaven and on earth. Those are your two options. Either it's there or it's here. Visible and invisible. That covers everything. Even thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Even things that are super great. And then he says, again, just for good measure, all things were created through him and for him. Paul wants to get this across to you. That Jesus made everything. Certainly, Paul was very subtly, I think, responding to the teachers in this church that were trying to say that that the things that were made were bad because he said, look, Jesus made it. Sure, sin corrupted it in the fall, but it had its origin, its source in God. But all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Through him means Jesus was the agent or the means of creation. When you see Genesis chapter 1, God speaking and stuff coming to be, John chapter 1 tells us Jesus was there because he was the word that God spoke, the agent, the means of creation. And even more stunning, the fact the text says all things were created 
for him. That's incredible. Everything, everywhere. There's not a single thing on the face of this earth or in the universe that doesn't exist to serve Jesus and his purposes. And in these days of uncertainty and confusion, with everything that is happening, we're told that it's happening for him. Jesus is in full control. The coronavirus is not outside his hands. The 2020 election is not outside his hands. Praise God, nothing is out of his hands. And all of it is serving his purposes, even if we don't see it or understand it. The text even says that he's, he's the one who is before all things, including things visible, invisible, and then he's the sustainer of everything. That Right now, it says, in him, all things are being held together. Everything from the largest nation of the world to the tiniest particles, all of which are held together by the word and authority of Jesus. And that means it's not being held together by you. Praise God, right? Doesn't that take just a burden off your shoulders? You are not the one sustaining the world right now. John Piper brilliantly said, God is not worn out running the galaxy He is not taxed at all, guiding every dust particle all the time. No matter how powerful we might think ourselves to be, we don't even hold ourselves together. God holds all things together. Jesus is holding everything together right now, and he's the only one who has the power to do so. He is the Lord of creation, because he's the Son of God, the last Adam, and the source of of creation. But there's a second reality in this text, isn't there? Jesus is the Lord of salvation. The Lord of salvation. As great as his lordship over creation is, the second half is so important. He didn't just create us and leave us here all by ourselves. We rebelled against God, but God came pursuing after us. First, notice it tells us that Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Verse 18. And he, Jesus, is the head of the church, the body. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Did you hear who the senior pastor of this church is? It ain't me. Surprise. In case you didn't know, Jesus is the senior pastor of this church. Every church, local, universal, whoever, whatever body it is, Jesus is the boss, the king, the pastor, the head. And the church is God's new humanity. He's recreating the world, and he's begun doing it by recreating his people. And Jesus is the king over these new people. He's the king over the church. The church is simply the body of people that Jesus has saved, and he says Jesus gets credit for it. And he gives two reasons that we should think of Jesus as in charge of the church. First, it tells us he's the beginning. He's the beginning that not only what we saw earlier, that Jesus has always existed, but that Jesus founded the church. The church exists because Jesus saved people. He told Peter that he would build his church upon a solid rock, and even the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Jesus is the founder, the architect, and the CEO of this church. 
in every church. It's not you, it's not me, it's not any one ministry here. We all serve underneath the boss as shepherds underneath the great shepherd, Jesus himself. He's the head because he's the beginning. None of us would be here if he hadn't saved us and salvation is of the Lord. He's also the head, it says, because he's the firstborn of the dead. Simply put, Jesus says, if you want to be head of the church, you got to die and then raise yourself back up to life. Any of us, any of us done that? No. Jesus says he's in that position of authority. How many of us have ever come back from the dead by our own power? How many of us have the power to cause breath to enter lifeless lungs or to cause a dead heart to beat again? Because of this, the text says he's not just in charge of the church. It says he is preeminent. That means the one who overcame death has authority over everything that is alive. He's in charge of everything. Because Jesus has risen from the dead, and by that saved a people for himself called the church, he is Lord of salvation. Salvation was his idea. And because of his work, not ours. Jesus has risen again from the dead, and he rules over all things. But why? What is the purpose of this? Verse 19 and 20 where we'll sort of land the plane this morning as incredible news. If you've not heard anything I've said, I want you to focus in on these two verses for me. Verses 19 and 20. For in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is Lord of salvation because he is the only mediator. Mediator. Mediator's a go-between. A mediator is a go-between, someone who makes peace between two parties in dispute. And Jesus is right now in the process of reconciling all things, making every wrong right, destroying evil and filling the earth with goodness and life. And you might say, but Matt, it doesn't feel that way. And I agree with you. If you watch CNN or Fox News all day, it doesn't look like Jesus is in control, does it? If you're looking out at the world or you're on social media all day long, you probably are very discouraged about what might be happening in this world. But we have rock-solid evidence that God brings good out of evil, and that is the cross. Look what our text says. Our text says that God makes peace by the blood of a cross. That the means God has for reconciling a sinful, hostile world and for having and for destroying evil was the murder of his beloved son. He's going to bring goodness out of tragedy. And you don't think his disciples who saw that Jesus crucified and buried didn't think the same thing you might be thinking? Where's God? <laughs> what's, a, what's with all these promises? And yet it was through the cross that God is going to eradicate all the evil in the world. That the cross is the ultimate evidence that God's good purpose will stand fast even in the darkest circumstances. He could bring salvation out of the murder of the very Son of God. But why the cross? Why the blood of the cross? Why did Jesus have to die? Don't tune out on me here. This is so important. 
because the gulf between you and a holy God is far too great for anything else to span. God is righteous and holy and perfect. And the Bible says he's so much these things. You know the Bible, the only time three attributes are put together next to each other is when they call God holy. He said, if you want to know what he is to the greatest, most superlative degree, he's holy, holy, holy. Set apart, perfect, morally good in every possible way. The Bible says so much so he can't even bear to look on evil in his presence. And our sin against God is not simply falling short or missing the mark or messing up. We often try to soften the true offense of sin, don't we? Sin is rebellion against God. Friends, it's saying to this holy king of the universe... In the words of the great Frank Sinatra, I want it my way. I don't want it your way. I know better than you do. And I'm going to live how I want. You know how truly bad sin is? Friends, you don't have to look further than the cross to see how bad sin really is. The only way to atone for it was for the blood of the beloved Son of God to be spilled. Sin is so serious, it merits Death, and it could only be dealt with through the pierced hands and feet of Jesus Christ. Sin is that serious. And standing in our own goodness or in our own religiosity, we don't stand a chance. We simply cannot bridge the gap. God's holiness must be satisfied, and that's where the cross is not solely something we look to to see the horror of sin, but it's also where you can look today to see the hope of mercy the hope of life, the hope of forgiveness, because at the cross, wrath and mercy kissed. The perfect, righteous anger of God towards sin and evil was poured out on Jesus so that his righteousness could be satisfied and his mercy could be extended. He could say, it is finished, paid in full. You can have peace with God. And peace that comes not through simply, let me try harder, Let me live better. Let me go to this church and give them some money. No, friends, that's not how peace with God is gotten. We need faith in a mediator. We need to trust in the finished work of Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2 tells us that there's only one mediator between God and man. And it was Christ Jesus Because Jesus lived a perfect life on earth as a man, he could step in our place and die as a man. But because he was God, he's eternal, he could bear the eternal weight of punishment due our sin. And he can bring us to peace with God. He died on the cross for our sin and he rose again three days later to leave us without any doubt that peace with God is available, but you must receive it. It's not just something you passively trust in or go, well, my grandmama and my mama believed it, so I must be good. I hear this all the time. My granddaddy's a preacher. He ain't going to be with you when you stand before him. Friends, you must receive it. You must respond by turning from our sin and trusting in ourselves and by trusting, by faith in Jesus and his finished work. One of my first Sundays I was here, I told you faith is like a chair. Friends, you can argue for the existence of the chair all you want. 
You can know all the inner workings of it, but it's no good to you until you sat down. And friends, the Bible would call us to set down in the finished work of Jesus through repentance and faith. The work of Jesus can be applied to you, and you can experience shalom, peace with God forever. And friends, his work doesn't stop there. The passage tells us that he's not just reconciling us, he's reconciling all things. That he's doing a reverse of creation. God created the world, then placed man in it, and to redeem it, he's redeeming mankind, and then he's going to redeem the whole thing. He's going to redeem the whole world. He's going, to, he's going to take care of evil forever. It's uncomfortable to talk about, but the Bible says God, is, God has a day when all evil will be punished and, play, and put in a place called hell. As uncomfortable as that is for many of us, it's a, it, there's going to be a place where, out, where those outside of Jesus will go, where all evil will go, and it will get its just punishment. God, the judge of all the earth, in the words of Genesis, we'll do what's right, but God has made a way, not only to reconcile us, but to reconcile all things. That the Bible says, you can read about this at the end of the book of Revelation, of a new heavens and a new earth. A world returned to Eden, but better. Really an Eden 2.0. Far better than anything else. A garden city where God will once again dwell with man. And Jesus didn't say, friends, that he's one of many ways to this life. Friends, when asked, how do we go, the disciple said, he said that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, Jesus is so much more important than your tacos or your fried chicken. Friends, getting the details wrong on matters of eternal life and eternal death are far more important Getting the person of Jesus wrong will ultimately lead to a wrong response to Jesus. A man named C.S. Lewis understood this. Atheist converted to Christians, written lots of things. Probably most probably be the Chronicles of Narnia, but he's actually written a lot of Christian books, like theology and some apologetics and stuff. And, and he's got a book called Mere Christianity that I'd encourage. If you've never read and you find it at a bookstore, pick it up, get it. It's fantastic. And he makes a powerful connection here. And here's what he says. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Christ. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who said he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left us open. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Where are you this morning with this Jesus? Jesus isn't simply a good teacher because good teachers don't rise out of the grave. Jesus isn't simply one of many options because, friends, the cross was too brutal for there to be other options. 
This passage about the identity of Jesus is meant to cause a response in Jesus to you. And all of you today will respond to him in one way or another. Indifference is continued rejection of him. Friends, maybe you're here this morning and you're a skeptic or you're a searcher or you're unsure. And I would say if God has pricked your heart and you want to know this Jesus, he stands ready to save you and encounter you. Romans chapter 10 verse 13 tells us that everyone, 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 everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Can I say again, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He'll draw near to you if you draw near to him. You can pray this morning right where you are. Or maybe somebody brought you here. You can pray with them or you can talk to me or one of the elders after. And we would love to speak with you more. But you can pray right where you are, confessing your sin and expressing your trust in Jesus. Maybe you're not sure what to do or what's going on, but, but something's gnawing at you. You want to talk more. You need more information. Or maybe you're a skeptic with a lot of questions, and we're glad you're here. There's a card on your bulletin you can tear off, fill out, and drop in the, in the basket on your way out. And we would love to follow up with you. Keep in mind, it might take a little bit of time with COVID going on, but we would love to speak more with you about, uh, about all that Jesus is and all that he's done. But for now, believers... Beyond that, God wants to recapture your vision. God wants us to respond to this in worship. That's why we're going to sing here in just a moment. We're going we're, we're to have worship again after to respond to his word. Because Paul is wanting to answer the prayer we saw last week. Remember, he prayed that we would be filled with the knowledge of God so as to walk in a way fully pleasing to him. Why do we think we can correctly live as Christians without being constantly reminded of who Christ is? Friends, how can we live in a world of uncertainty without knowing the certain one who isn't going anywhere? Has the message of Jesus ever been more needed in our world than today? Believers, be refreshed with this side of Jesus. And friends, rejoice in worshiping with him in a few moments with joy and thanksgiving for who he is and what he's done. Let us pray. Father God, you are good. You have loved us and given us a good hope by grace. Lord, I want to pray for any that are here today who do not know you, that you would prompt them by your spirit now. Draw them to yourself Cause them to say to you now and confess their sins to you and go, Jesus, I trust you. You're the Lord and Savior of my life, and I will give you my life. Save me by faith from my sins. You are my only hope. And may those who've prayed that today come out of the light and come out of the darkness and into the light and speak with us. And Lord, for those of us that are believers and love you here today, capture our attention with this. Help us to live and to share this Jesus with others that we're around in a time when there's so many questions and uncertainty. What a better time to speak of eternal life and eternal hope. Empower us, give us boldness and help today, and be honored as we make much of you together. And I ask and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.